Family matters. We are, uh, we're in week, I don't know, something of a series that we're doing. The four or five, I heard both answers. We'll all just pretend like we know what we're talking about, okay? Um, but, uh, but before I get into it, next week, uh, you guys got a special treat. Uh, a really good friend of mine, his name is Mikey Powers. Contrary to his name, he's not 12. Um, Mikey. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he'll be here next week. He's a friend of mine who, uh, who is in the Foss to Adopt system. He comes from a, a rough upbringing, and so he is going to talk about uh, the Christian's role, specifically the capital C Church's role uh, in the midst of broken families. And so you're really not going to want to miss next week. He's a, uh, a great guy, has a pretty incredible story. And so even if you're, uh, you're not a part of a fo- the foster system or anything like that, um, it's, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than, than individuals. It, it pertains to the entire church. And so please make sure you're here for that. Uh, but for this week, we get the opportunity to talk about what I'm calling a generational handoff. And uh, it isn't just from one generation, from the oldest generation who's currently living to the generation after them. We're talking about the generational handoff to every generation that is behind us. And so even as I'm looking at this today as someone who is, I can still barely claim I'm in my my early 30s, but someone who's in my early 30s, I'm looking to the generation behind me and how I can hand things off to them. And so for those of you who are in maybe your 50s, 60s, 70s, you're looking at not just the generation behind you, but also the generation behind them. And so we're talking about this idea of a a generational Handoff. Does anybody ever watch the Summer Olympics? Summer Olympics? I get geeked up about a couple things in the Summer Olympics. Number one is water polo, because it's my only chance to watch water polo on TV. Because weird, it's not a spectator sport uh, for some reason. Um, mostly because no one understands it. They're like, there's a bunch of dudes in Speedos. I don't need to watch that. That's cool. Um, but the other thing I get really, really excited about is track and field, right? There's a swimming side of things, which is exciting for like the first week and water polo. Then track and field kind of takes over after that. And, and I'm not talking like boring track and field, right? Like the, the marathons or anything like that, where you could walk away and turn it back on three hours later. And you're like, okay, didn't miss anything. Um, that's how much I know, three hours. I think everybody is done in three hours. But anyway, um, but specifically... Uh, the, the sprints, the, the four by 100 relays, right? They are exciting. If you ever get the opportunity to turn those on and to watch those things, they're super exciting. But the thing that makes them really exciting just isn't, isn't just the speed in which the people are running in the midst of those relays. It is the fact that there is a team component that goes along with those as well. It is incredibly important, not just that you're fast, because everybody who's running that race in the Olympics is really fast. The difference is oftentimes how well they are able to pass the baton from one person to the next person. Uh, in 1996, this was, on, uh, this was demonstrated very, very well. The clear favorite in the relay race, as most Olympic races go for sprints anyway, was of course the United States of America. Come on. Um, woohoo, go America. I heard a woot woot for America. Um, for America. Um, 
But that race has been won, believe it or not, by the U.S. team 75% of the time. So America, clear favorites here. Um, and, and, and they always put together, even if they don't win, they always put together a really strong competitive team of sprinters in the world. Well, in 1996, the U.S. actually lost to the Canadian team, right? Now, when you think of Canada, you think of a lot of things. Sprinters aren't usually one of, one of them. So when I was researching this, I was like, really? Like the maple syrup Mountie guys? Like we lost to them? with the big hats that's not aerodynamic like that doesn't work um but they ended up the u.s team ended up losing they were disqualified because of the fact the way they handed off the baton from one person to the next was illegal they fumbled the baton uh pass well, i don't even i'm sure there's a way to say that but the inability to pass properly the baton from one runner to the next is ultimately what led to their defeat led to their fumble. And I think I actually told this story when I was uh, my first weekend here, but, uh, but it bears repeating that when I was in high school, uh, me and my friends, we, we owned the school when we were seniors, or at least we thought we did, right? Everybody in here was like, yeah, me too. I own the school also. Uh, but that's what we assumed, just like every uh, high school senior, especially in our youth ministry, though. We were in charge. Okay? Our leadership gave us the opportunity to lead. We won the games. We asked to speak from the stage. We were helping with leading worship. And our youth pastor was pouring into us every single week on Tuesdays. He would come to campus, as a matter of fact. He would come to campus. He would bring us food. We would give him five bucks for the food. And he would just sit there and chat with us and talk to us about how things were going in our lives, both spiritual lives and and high school lives. But one day he sat us down at lunch and he told us that he had no plans to come back to our school the following year. And that really frustrated a group of seniors who was like, how dare you? Don't you know who we are? You will come back to our school next year. And he went on to to continue to explain that he wasn't going to come because there were no students attending our youth ministry from our school anymore. As a matter of fact, we were the last in line of people from Atwater High to attend that youth group. So we puffed out our chests and like wannabe alpha males, we decided we were going to bring people to church for the last two months of our high school career. And we were able to squeak by by having a few people attend church there, a few people attend the youth ministry there, and ultimately our youth pastor at the time, Scott, continued to go to the school. But the problem was that regardless of how we, well we did the church thing, we did not hand off the baton well. We actually did really poorly at it. Last weekend at Pastor Betty's memorial service, it's a beautiful service, and it's actually online if you have two hours to spare. Uh, it's on YouTube, uh, and we have the link. If you want it, you can, you can email the church office, and they'll get that to you for those of you who weren't able to come. Um, but many of us sat in this room and listened to a guy by the name of Pastor Rick Lindbergh. He was the last guy that talked, right? He was the guy with kind of the maroonish-looking jacket and the bright white hair combed to the side that you just couldn't help but lean in and listen to that guy uh pastor rick talked about the importance of passing the baton well and it's no secret that as a church we're at a time of transition right now even as i've been here for a few months we're far from settled 
I've shared with many people that everybody's really happy right now because the new pastor's here and there's some energy in the room and we have a few more people showing up and man, things are good. But the reality of this situation is we largely haven't changed much. We're in the same spot now where we were at a few months back, even 15 months ago. We're still in the midst of transition. And I need you to hear that from me, that things are going to get harder before they get better. We are still in the midst of transition. As I do my best to make sure I don't drop the baton that's being handed to me by Gary and by Jeff and by those of you who have been in this congregation, who have held our mantle, who have passed the baton, who have done an incredible job living for Jesus and supporting this church. As I do my best not to fumble that baton. We have a huge responsibility to make sure the future generations are ready to take on that baton as well. It goes beyond just our church, because I'm sure there are many in here who have been, been carrying the baton in our mantle for a very long time, and you've carried it well, and there's others in here who have yet to pick up the baton that others have been trying to hand you for years. And it's time for you to step up to the plate and take the baton and begin to run with it. But you see, it's a two-way street. Someone can't take a baton from someone who is unwilling to let it go. It's a two-way street. The truth is we all have a part to play in making sure that we continue to run the weight race well as a church and as a family. Because beyond just a church, we, most of us in here have kids or grandkids, or if you're blessed enough to have great grandkids, good on you. But, uh, but, but for, some, for most of us in here, we have that. And as we continue to pursue Jesus, we need to be getting ready to hand that baton, that baton off at full speed to them. Even if I go down in history as the worst pastor in the entire world, which I'm really hoping I don't, by the way. <laughs> but even if I do, if no one comes to faith or grows a knowledge of the Lord under my care, but my kids grow up to love Jesus and sprint towards him, then I will consider my life successful. Because I have a responsibility to pass the baton to the generation behind me. And that responsibility is no greater than those that I'm in direct care of, my children, the people who are immediately behind me. And for you grandparents in here, your kids and the people behind them, your grandkids. And for those of you in here who have great grandkids, your kids, your grandkids, and even your great grandkids. Because the most important thing in the entire world to me is not this church. The most important thing to me in the world is my kids coming to know and love Jesus. And your response, if you were lucky enough to have kids and grandkids of your own, should be the same. That should be your desire. That should be your hope. Your mission field begins with your family and your family loving Jesus. And I'm already figuring out ways how to hand that baton off to my kids, allowing them to, to pray, hoping and teaching them to be grateful for what God has given us in the first place, allowing my kids to be able to lead devotions that we do sometimes at night when we're not flat on the ground exhausted. Allowing my kids opportunity to do those things. I want to hand that baton off well. I want my kids to accept the baton for me at full sprint so I can focus on providing wisdom and clarity when they are raising families to love Jesus as well. 
I want them to be able to sprint forward so I do not impede them in any way. We are at full sprint towards the end of our lives, whether we like it or not. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, it says this, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But I want you to know it's not just any race. It's a relay. There's a team involved with it. God is not only concerned about how you run or how I run. He cares just as much about the runners after us who will take our baton and run the next lap. The runners of the next generation. The relay race that God has us running began with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve passed on their baton to their kids, who then passed it on to their kids, and on and on. And it's a race that's still not finished. And who really knows whether the race of salvation history will end with our generation? We don't know. The Lord may not return for a number of generations yet, so we better make sure that we're not short-sighted. We need to make sure that we have the end game in mind, the long game in mind. Because it goes beyond us and my generation better learn from the past we'd better remember what happened to previous generations before us the bible's full of examples of glory days and blessing and fruitfulness whenever a generation receives proper training from the previous one there's glory days all over the place in the bible But the Bible not only has stories of glory and triumph, but also stories when a generation experiences spiritual defeat and decay. Because the parents and the leaders of a former generation neglected to train their offering or their offspring for their turn in the relay race. It's a tension we have to hold. Look at Judges chapter 2, and we're going to be camping there for a while. But Judges chapter 2, I don't think I put it on the screen. So you're going to have to have your Bibles open or take out your phone. For those of you, you can click away on your phone real quick. Pull that out. It's Judges chapter 2. We're starting in verse 6, and we're going all the way to 15. Judges 2, 6 to 15. It says this. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, verse 8. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his, of his inheritance at Timnathares, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the, on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 11. When the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroths. And to the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whether they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. 
One of the things that I want you to get through from this, and this is your first fill in the blank, is there is no guarantee that the next generation will follow your lead. There is no guarantee that the next generation will follow your lead. Judges 2.8 says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. We all die sooner or later. Jacob died. Joseph died. Moses died. If you hadn't figured it out already, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, you're going to die too. That's how it works. But the good news is that the death of a godly person doesn't have to be the death of a vision. Doesn't have to be the death of a mission. In fact, we've been running our race well. If we've been running our race well, we'll have raised up people younger than ourselves to whom we can hand the baton to. And they in turn will not only run well, but may even run farther and better than we did. That should be the goal for us to be able to put people on our shoulders. They can stand on our shoulders and go further, faster than we were ever able to. But history proves that this is a good news scenario is often more, uh, or often the exception rather than the rule. This doesn't happen normally. Moses was a great leader and he didn't fumble it when he passed the baton onto Joshua. And soon Joshua died. His contemporaries, the other elders who remained alive for a short while after his death, fumbled the baton badly. It says in 2.7, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But then in verse 10, it says, when all that generation, so Joshua's generation, though Joshua and the elders, that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, who didn't know him. All it took was one generation, one, somewhere between 40 and 100 years, however you quantify generation, it took one generation. And we see that the kids, the offspring of that generation that had been blessed and privileged to enter the promised land already forgot who the God of Israel was who delivered it to them in the first place. It actually says another generation rose after them who didn't know the Lord. And it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, especially when you look at the story. It's hard to believe that that a generation, one generation after Joshua did not believe in the Lord. Because we have the, the, the complete and incredible exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the sea on dry land, the, the, the provisions, the signs, the wonders, all of the things that happened. And still they didn't believe. The Lord and his works were virtually unknown. And this should be a warning to all of us. Many of us are the eyewitnesses of the power of God. A lot of you in here got to see the good old days of this church. A lot of you remember fondly at your family gatherings when you had 30, 40, 50 people coming to those gatherings. And now it seems every single time you sit around your Thanksgiving table, that number is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we remember fondly and we remember fondly and we remember fondly. Many of you remember the glory days of this church when we had attendance numbers touching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. 
and it was packed and there was energy in the room and things were happening and we were hiring people and, and F.B. Hanford was the place to be. And we remember and we look back fondly on those days. But this should be a warning. Because it's hard for us to believe that a younger generation, this younger generation that's coming behind us, could ever walk away from the Lord that we love and serve. Because it's so real to us, it's so tangible to us. We've been a part of it. How can they not see that? How can they not know that? But if we're not careful, the same thing that happened then could happen now. Our children and our students and your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids could easily miss out on experiencing God unless we successfully pass on the baton. The next generation may not only lose the race, but they may become completely and totally disenfranchised with God altogether. I've seen it happen. Tons of people in my generation, the millennial generation, I even hesitate to say millennial from stage because there are bad feelings about that word and those people in this room. The idea of millennials, that they don't care, that they're flippant, that they can't hold the conversation, they can't look you in the eye, they'd rather look at their iPhone than they would look, look at other people and chat with other people. I've seen people in my generation become completely and totally disenfranchised with church. I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying it's the older generation's fault. Like I said, a handoff has to be two people. But what I am saying is that maybe we haven't done our best to be able to hand that baton off to them. So what are we doing in order to pass the baton? How do we even do it? Because for me, I don't like to give up control. If you're like me, like if I want something done right, I'm going to do it, right? All the guys are nodding their head in the room right now. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to do that. I do those things because I'm a man. But, but legitimately, I don't, want, I don't like giving up control of things. And so especially if something is near and dear to my heart, forget it. Like, you're not touching it. I'm going to do it even if it takes me three weeks to do. And, and, and myself and one other person who may have some expertise in the area would take us 10 minutes. Like, I don't care. I'm not giving up control on that. We all think that because of the fact, if we, if we hold on to the baton even tighter than we should, thinking it can get better, that, that there's no possible way it can get better than what I'm currently doing. We have to be willing to let go of that, of that baton. What happens when we do that is we strip the younger generation of responsibility. We say, nope, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. You just sit there and you have fun. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Man, Thanksgiving time, I didn't have to wash dishes until I was like 27. Because everybody was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. You sit down, you relax, you have fun. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> I don't want to use my fingernail to get giblets off the porcelain, right? Like, I don't want that to have porcelain. It's a toilet. Um, different. Definitely didn't do that. Um, I would never come back to that Thanksgiving. Um, but what happens when we don't let go of the baton is we strip the generation after us of responsibility and even the ability to use their giftings in order to serve the Lord. It's the second thing that you need to write down. It's our responsibility to prepare and empower those coming after us. It's our responsibility to prepare and empower those who are coming after us. 
How, you, how do you do it? The first thing you have to do is you got to be willing to give away responsibility. And that's hard because like I said, we like control, but you have to be willing to give away responsibility. I would have never found out that I, like, that I was gifted, and I probably would have in some of the time, but, but I don't know if I would have ever found out that I was gifted as a teacher and a preacher if my youth pastor, when I was 17 years old, didn't come to me and say, hey, I would love for you to be able to teach this weekend. Man, that's a lot of trust to put into a 17-year-old's hands. And not even just the youth group, like he gave me that shot, but then we did a youth Sunday every year at our church and they had like students speak from the pulpit. And like, he was like, I want you to do it. Like, okay. And it was terrible. Like, I know it was terrible. I remember the scripture that I went through. I was like, I didn't exegete that properly at all. That was real bad. So I'm really glad that people had grace, but you have to give away responsibility and you have to be willing in that arena to be able to say, man, he did a great job for his first shot. How can I now come along behind him and help spur him forward? Because what happened was I, I, I did my first sermon. And then two days later, after I did that sermon, my youth pastor said, hey, let's go grab lunch. And I thought he was going to tell me how great I did. And man, he, told, he was like, hey, great. He did say great job. But right. And then he pushed me. He spurred me forward and said, hey, this is what you need to do. These are the things I want you to work on for next time. And he gave me more opportunity. He was willing to give away responsibility, even though he knew the end product was a whole lot worse with me delivering it than if he were to. He was willing to give away responsibility. And in the same vein, relinquish control. More gets done and allows others to stand on your shoulders. And like I said, guys, we have a hard time with this. Or anything that you're passionate about, you have a hard time with this. Because you're like, no, well, I do it this way. This is the way I do things. Rather than allowing somebody else who may have a fresh opinion or a different way to do things or a different way to accomplish it. Or free up time for you to do the things that only you can do. And let them do that and give that responsibility and give that control away. More gets done when you give it away. Inspire them to go further than you've been able to go. So my youth pastor, when he gave me the opportunity to preach, he didn't come back to me and just say, man, I mean, you tried real hard, but we're not, we're not going to go there again. No, he said, man, Peter, you, I mean, great job. You have these things to work on. And I think if you work on these things, man, you're going to be better next time. And next time, and I think that like vocational ministry might be a thing that you could look at. I mean, he encouraged me and he encouraged me and he encouraged me. I became his intern when I was 19 years old. I was 19 and 20 years old. He gave me my first shot at vocational ministry. I did an outreach ministry with him. I did a high school ministry with him. And it was all because he wanted to see me succeed. He wanted to see the next generation succeed. He wanted to push me Forward, He wanted to hand off that baton. And then it freed him up to do the things that only he could do. He knew that the product I was putting forth wasn't as good as his. But he also recognized that if he empowered me, I was going to get better. And ultimately more was going to get done for the kingdom of God. That's what he did. He spurred me forward. He gave me a seat at the table. Because if we don't give the generation behind us a seat at the table, they, if they don't have the same buy-in 
that we do. The generation behind us, whatever generation it is, is going to be swayed by other things. It's going to be swayed by other people. That's why we're looking at my generation as a generation who ultimately cares less about organizational structures within the church. It's because oftentimes they weren't given a seat at the table. It says in verses 11 and 12 of our text, it says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods, the people who were all around them. They served the gods of the people who were all around them. So you look at what the gods are of today and you can talk about the idea of technology or you can talk about the idea of pornography or perversion or whatever it is you want to look at or money or stuff and things, whatever it is. You look at those things and those are the Baals that the generation behind us is going to serve and love unless we do something about it. I think the previous generation here in the text assumed that because they had seen the power of God, that their sons and their grandsons would walk in the same way that they did as well. That's foolishness. And if that's our assumption, the next generation is going to be far from Christ. I think it this way. I love baseball. Most of you guys know I love baseball, and this isn't going to be a Giants rant or anything like that. But Dodgers, I really hope you make the playoffs. <laughs> anyway, we know we suck. Um, but I love baseball. Most of you are aware of the fact that I love baseball. I play softball on our church team, and, and I want my sons to love baseball as well. Yeah, I do. Because it's given me so much joy, so many life lessons in my life and teamwork and, all, and how to respond to authority and everything like that. And I want my kids to love baseball a whole lot. But if all I ever do is take them to watch me play and never give them the opportunity to pick up a bat and a ball, they're never going to fall in love with the game. They're never going to fall in love with the game. They say, oh yeah, it's something my dad really enjoyed. My dad loved that. It's no different with our walks with Christ. If we never give them the opportunity to have a seat at the table, they're never going to have the buy-in that we do. For not giving them room at the table, even relinquishing our own spots at the table if need be, for those who need to be given the opportunity to fall in love with Jesus firsthand. We have to do it. But how? How do we take responsibility for them loving Jesus? We take responsibility by teaching them well and allowing them opportunities to grow and fail. That's how you do it. And that's your next blank. And don't put your notes away. Because I know that's your last one. But we need to teach them well and allow them opportunities to grow and fail. fail. To give practical instructions to parents as, as well as to others who join in, in teaching them well and that sort of thing on how to pass the baton of faith to the next generation that they might win the race. So I've talked about how important it is for us to consider the generation behind us. And I've, I've talked about that warning and how easy it can be to fail in bringing up children to, to know the Lord. Um, I want to give a little bit of, of practical instruction. And I could point out a lot of things we should do, right? Set up set a personal example for our kids, to discipline them, express our love to them, pray for them. All of those things are good and important things. And all of these things are vital. All of those things are biblical, 
But two things that I want to talk about, and it's even out of our text in Judges 2. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that our kids know the Lord, or to make sure that our kids know the Lord is to teach them God's word. In Judges 2.10, it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. One of the keys to knowing the Lord is to know his word. It's to know the scriptures. It's to know the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, God's inerrant word. In Joshua's time, there were no formal scriptures, but whatever revelation they had already had, the revelation they had received, they were commanded to teach it to their kids. That's how it worked. And whatever works that God had done for Israel, they were to talk to their kids about those works. In Deuteronomy 9 and 10, 4, 9 and 10, it says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade, your heart, fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your kids and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. And may teach them to their children. And may teach them to their children. And we read in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 7. We love Deuteronomy 6, 5, right? Everybody always talks about Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And in verse 6, we forget about sometimes. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. It's not just that we're supposed to love the Lord our God. It's we're supposed to love the Lord our God. And on top of that, teach our kids how to do it as well. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 7. There's no substitute for carefully teaching our kids. If our kids would automatically come to know who God is because they live with godly parents and have godly friends, then ultimately Moses would never have needed to say to the people of Israel, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Moses, a massive character in the Bible, one of our favorite characters in the Bible. And he couldn't even get the next generation to fall in love with Jesus. He tells them, you have to teach your children. The knowledge of God isn't transmitted merely by osmosis. Because I'm close to you, you will fall in love with Jesus. That's not how it works. And this is for both moms and dads, by the way. I spoke at our men's breakfast yesterday. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I spoke at our men's breakfast yesterday. And man, I just get fired up by the fact that, that men have just stepped aside in the home and allowed women to be the spiritual leaders. You know, something that drives me nuts is when stuff like that happens. Men, you have a divine call in your lives to lead your homes. Step up to the plate and lead your homes. Sorry, I got angry. Didn't mean to get angry. But other family members as well should effectively help raise the kids to know the Lord uh, by teaching about him. Timothy was taught not only by his mom, but also his grandma. Second Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of, our, of your sincere faith, which first, which first lived in your grandma Lois, Lois and in your mother Eunice. And, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. 
Sorry, I butchered that. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Teach them to your kids. Teach them to your kids. Teach them to the generation that is behind you. I'm so thankful that not only uh, do I get the opportunity to teach my kids, my wife, who is completely in love with Jesus, gets the opportunity to teach our kids, but we also have a place where we can bring our kids where other adults can pour into them as well. Because so often you can be, mom and dad are talking about Jesus again. Mom and dad are talking about Jesus again, right? And okay, we're going to pray because it's before a meal again and we're about to go to bed, so we're going to pray again. But then we have these other people who are willing to serve and pour into the lives of our kids. And because of that, our kids get to hear from multiple sources how important Jesus is to their lives. I'm so thankful for that. The second thing we need to do to make sure our kids come to the Lord is to make sure that we ourselves walk a life of faith and dependence upon God. You guys ever hear of that phrase, more is caught than taught? If you haven't, write it down. More is caught than taught. I, uh, I don't remember a single message that my, that, that my youth pastor gave. I don't remember anything um, from my pastor when I was sitting next to my mom and dad at Merced First Baptist or anything like that. But I do remember when I woke up for water polo, when my practice was at 6 o'clock in the morning, and my mom uh, would come wake me up at 5.15, and she had already been up for a half an hour reading her Bible. And I remember walking out to our den, and her coffee was sitting there in the same coffee mug that she, she, uh, she had every single morning, and her Bible was open. It was a thick, dark brown Bible um, that was worn and beat up and underlined, and, and just, you could tell that she spent time with Jesus. And I didn't learn any truths from that, except the fact that this is something that is so important that my mom is going to wake up an hour earlier than she needs to in order to have time with her Savior. This is important to her. This is important to her. And I caught that. She didn't tell me every single day, hey, it's really important for you to go read your Bible in the morning. She didn't have to. Because I recognize that in her already. She displayed it for me to see. We need to realize that more is caught than taught. And one of the things we need to recognize is that our kids have a more difficult culture to grow up in now than any of us had before them. Oldest generation in the room, I thank you. I love what you have done. The generation behind you had, had trials and temptations that you never had. And the generation behind them had trials and temptations that they never had. And my generation had trials and temptations that the one before us never had. And my kids will have trials and temptations that I never had. And that's how it works. And it gets, it, it, we, we all have our different things that we have to deal with. Many of our kids are going through a hard time and will go through more hard times. Some will wander for a season in the wilderness, but I believe that if we continue to pray for them, if we continue to pursue them, if we continue to look for them when they are far off, much like the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, and sprint to them with a robe and a ring in our hand saying, I'm so grateful that you're home. Welcome home. Like I know there are people in this room whose kids have walked away from the faith, and because of that, your heart hurts. And I would say, don't give up on them. 
Letting go of control and passing the baton is one of the most difficult things you can do. That's why in the entire history of the Olympiad, they haven't changed it. It hasn't gotten more technological savvy or anything like that. They haven't added like an electrical charge to the baton to make it harder. They've simply kept it the same because it's difficult enough the way that it is. There are thousands of books written about leadership and transition from both secular and religious standpoint. But unless we allow the people who are coming after us to stand on our shoulders, then we will not see progress. We will not see Jesus proclaimed. We have to let those people after us stand on our shoulders. All of us have an influential ceiling. For some of us, that's about five people. In my leadership, I can effectively lead five people. For others of us, it's maybe in the thousands. I don't know. But regardless of that, the way we increase the potency of our influence that we have is to allow other people to stand on our shoulders who may be able to carry a fuller load than we can. And so you say, look, I can't do that, or I'm too tired to do that, or I would have been able to do that 30 years ago, or whatever it may be. But I can give you wisdom, and I can give you security in the fact that I'm going to walk through this with you. There's a wall in front of us. Man, I'm going to be right in front of you. Run full speed. Let me knock it down for you. You stand on my shoulders and let's go further now than I was ever able to because of the fact that me and you are joined together in this. That we're going to act like the family of God and hand a baton off from one to the next. That we're going to act like a family who wants to love and pursue Jesus. And so when it's my kids' turn to lead their families, I'm going to be there as a sage to allow them to be encouraged by me. Rather than for me to get in their way and say, no, you should be leading your family like this. Why don't you do this? This is what works for us. If you just do this, your family will be fine. We have to allow other people to stand on our shoulders. And I'll finish with this. Um, When I got hired at High Desert Church, uh, I got hired by a, a guy. His name was Kurt Thielen. Um, Kurt's the, one of the most brilliant biblical scholars that I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, I, I earned my degree from Liberty, or I got my degree from Liberty University. I earned my degree in Pastor Kurt's office two days a week for about eight months, three hours at a time. He's a brilliant man. Um, but Kurt, when he hired us, it was me and one other guy, his name's Evan. And uh, I was the high school guy. Evan was the junior high guy. And that's where we were. We were the high school and junior high guy. And Kurt led us and he spearheaded things. And he led us move forward in different areas and aspects and that sort of thing. But ultimately, we were capped by his leadership because he was such a strong leader. He didn't need, he didn't think he needed other people around him in order to lead us forward. Or he just thought we were too immature to do it. Either way, Kurt, about a year after he hired me, was asked to move into a different position of a little bit higher authority in the church. And so he moved to that position and they put a guy by the name of Matt Colomb in charge. Matt Colomb was our worship pastor and our lead pastor. Um, so he wore quite a few different hats. But Matt, even if you, if you talk to him, he would tell you firsthand that he is not a leader. He's never thought of himself as a leader. He was a guitar player. And honestly, he got hired to do the, the contemporary service at, at, at his church. And so literally all he did was show up, play four songs, and go home. That was his job, and he got paid super good to do it. But then they put Matt in charge. 
And because Matt recognized his own deficiencies in leadership and his own, Ill, and he's a great guy and a great leader, and I'm saying deficiencies and not good at leading, he was great. But what Matt did was he put Evan and I on his shoulders. He unleashed Evan and I and said, look, look, I don't have time to do everything that we need to do, but you guys have more capability than what you have been given. And so because of that, stand on my shoulders, the three of us, we're going to go. We're going to push hard and we're going to do our best to make God known in the Victor Valley where we were. And under Kurt's leadership, the campus that we were a part of was about 800 people. Four years later, our campus was over 1,400 And it's not because we were this mad, big, massive, mega church. We were a temporary setup in a junior high school. By all metrics, we shouldn't have been growing. But because of the fact that Matt said, hey, let's all three of us do this together. Rather than Matt trying to do it on his own, we were able to go further, faster. He recognized that there was was power in all of us moving forward.